Okay, if you have your Bibles, would you please open them to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We are returning to the book of John from now until the beginning of Lent, which starts on the 1st of March. If you want to read along with your family the book of John, this would be a great time to read chapter 6, to study it together, to think about it together. You'll find on your bulletin, I don't remember what page it's on, you'll see it toward the very back. It's on page uh, 11. I will include during January questions for you to ask your family. Our community groups are typically on a break in January, but th that doesn't mean that discipleship's on a break. That doesn't mean that leadership's not on a, uh, leadership is on a break. And so dads, especially if you need some um, encouragement to, to think with your brides or um, you want to use the bulletin as a way to um, meditate on Scripture throughout the course of the week, then on page 11 there's some questions you can ask your family, you can think about together based upon the passage that I'll preach that week. So we're in John chapter 6. We're coming back to the book of John after a long hiatus, and so let me kind of reorient you to the landscape of the book of John. The book of John answers the question not so much what Jesus did, but why Jesus did what he did. It was written to the first century church, Jew and Gentile, in Asia Minor, in a world of rising tensions to believe the gospel and to become this sort of community that the early church needed to become in a context where there was great opposition to the gospel, not unlike our world even today. John begins his book with a poem and in that poem, he gives seven different names of Jesus. And after that poem, then he shows how Jesus and John the Baptist met. And then John writes about how Jesus confronts four institutions of, of society in the life of an Israelite. The first institution was, was the family. He, he confronts uh, the people at a wedding and turns water into wine at the wedding. The second institution Jesus goes after is um, the temple, the religious culture of the day. And then Jesus addresses a rabbi. He goes after the religious authorities. And then he meets a woman at a sacred well. The family, the religious culture, the religious authority, and then the sacred history of Israel. Jesus, John says, confronts. And then John puts Jesus' life together in such a way that he then confronts the four feasts of Israel. And the first feast is the Shabbat, Sabbath, where if you'll remember in our earlier study of John, Jesus just healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Jews get upset with Jesus because he apparently breaks the law of the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, my father is working on the Sabbath and so also am I. And then in chapter 6, Jesus addresses a second feast, the feast of Passover, and as we'll see today, Jesus uh, says that not only will I miraculously prepare bread for thousands, which leads the crowd to ask Jesus for more and more, but Jesus says, I am the bread that gives you eternal life. And we'll see that over the next several weeks. 
And Jesus turns from that feast and then he goes to the, the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the first of uh, chapter 7 through 10. And then finally he goes to the Feast of Hanukkah at the end of chapter 10 of the book of John. The rededication of the temple. And we'll, we'll get into it when time comes. What's important for us to know is that John intends to present his readers in the early church with a question. And he presents the question still to us today. John says, this is who Jesus says he is. So the question is, for the first century church and for you and for me, who do you say he is? That was a question to the first century church, and that remains a question for you and me. John wants the first century church and us to become the kind of men and women who knows who Jesus is amidst the opposition to the gospel. To be the kind of people that Eugene Peterson, a name that some of you may know, who walk with their head up and their shoulders back. Who can stand against the prevailing winds of the culture with the truth of who Christ is. And John wants us not only to answer the question of who Jesus is, but he wants us to answer that question together. To kind of give us a community value. To stand on the truth of who Christ is. When there is such opposition to him. And so, in chapter 6, we turn our attention. This has been called the Grand Central Station of the book of John. There's so much activity here. And so, would you stand together and we'll read the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. And please give your attention to the reading of God's word. It is meant to change you. After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy over there who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley, the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, open our eyes and our ears to hear your word preached. Make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
on the way to John showing us that Jesus is the true Passover bread, which is the point of his pericopes in John chapter 6. He leaves us a very simple principle, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to spend two weeks talking about it. Here's the principle. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness so that we become the objects of and the channels for his overflowing power. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness so that we become the objects of and the channels for his overflowing power. Now, a principle and a practice. Let me talk about the principle this week. Jesus' his brilliance comes out in this passage in so many ways. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness so that we become the objects of his power and uh, objects of and channels for his overflowing power. And so the principle is the first half of that statement. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. Look at the text. Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders are offended that Jesus violated Sabbath law. And now John shows us after this, first of chapter 6, after this Sabbath experience, Jesus is retreating to the eastern shore of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias in John's day. That's one of the reasons we know it was written in the first century. Which reminds us that um, the first century church is hearing this. They're, John is relating it to things that they would know. And Jesus, it says, went up on a high mountain. Now stop. Whenever you read in the Bible that somebody went up on a high mountain, who automatically do we, are we to think of? Who also went up on a high mountain in the Old Testament? Moses. Right. And what did he do at the high mountain? Mount Sinai. He goes up on a high mountain. And, and John wants us to, to know that we are to think of Moses here. And the next verse tells us that he wants us to think about that. Look at the next verse. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at, was at hand. And Jesus, it says, he sits down. Which is an interesting contrast to Moses who stood up before the people. But Jesus himself sits down. So here you have Jesus, the greater Moses, up on a mountain with his people. Giving them his word, providing for them. Sitting down. The Passover happens in April or May every year. And the text alludes to that because it says in verse 10 that there was much grass in the place. The grass had started growing again. It was green. There was lots of space to sit down. And Jesus sees these people coming after him, coming for him. And um, it's, it's not unlikely that, the, that this group of people who were following Jesus because of the signs that he was doing were, were a kind of small guerrilla force, like looking for the Messiah of Israel. They're following him. They're eager. These men may have had like adrenaline coursing through their veins, thinking that this is on the, um, this the very beginning of what could be a revolt against the Romans, a war. And Jesus sees these men coming after him, following him as he does all these signs, wanting him to be the great political ruler, the Messiah of Israel. 
And, and Jesus, knowing what he has to do, I, I love this. He turns to Philip, who's one of the hometown boys of Bethesda. So he, Philip would know where all the local fast food joints are. And he, and he looks to Philip and he asks him, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, is, is that a fair question? <laughs> There's 5,000 people out there, plus their families. It could have been 20,000 people. What do you mean, where are we to find eight, eight months' wage, Jesus wouldn't provide enough food to feed all these people. And I can, I can, when you read this text, I can just see, I can feel the anxiety that Philip, Philip is like running the math, and he's thinking, uh, are you serious? Like, are we to plunder the temple treasury? Like, maybe if Judas would get his sticky fingers out of the cookie jar, maybe then we could have enough money to do this, but are you nuts? There's no way. And Andrew, Andrew, you know, who's another local town, uh, local, uh, hometown boy together with Peter kind of sees the consternation of his friend and so Andrew like dripping with sarcasm it seems in the text although you can't quite pull it out of the Greek it seems sarcastic <laughs> Andrew goes well hey um there's a boy with five barley loaves and two fish which is kind of like the equivalent of like a Hebrew happy meal I mean, like, here you go, Jesus. Like, like, here it is. Like, this is the, this is the, here we have a poor boy here who has barley, which is the bread of the poor. You know, Plato said that barley was only fit for men who were the most inconvenienced and for dogs. So here's barley, and here's two fish. And I can just sense Andrew is like, hey, 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 Jesus. Well, we got five barley loaves and two fish. Go for it. And Jesus says, okay. And you can kind of sense like Peter looks at Andrew and he kind of like, are we doing this? Oh, he's praying. I, we're doing this. And, and Jesus gives thanks for the food. And then he, he distributes it. And Jesus puts, puts his disciples in like in a, a crazy awkward situation. Like they're standing before 5,000 men and Jesus takes Andrew's suggestion serious. And the boy offers up his lunch. More on that next week. And, and Jesus begins to pray. And the fourth sign of the Gospel of John begins. That Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. Plus their families. Up to 20,000 perhaps. So, how is Jesus sufficient for us? And there's two ways in the text that, that emerge Let's touch on them. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. Let me help that land on you. Number one, he shows his sufficiency in that Jesus is the source of life. My kids were watching um, National Geographic the other day and Brain Games came on. Have you seen that show? The comedian Ben Bailey asks like brain teasers of everybody. And one of the brain teasers was, okay, you have to choose between three doors. And behind door number one are trained assassins, ninjas, ready to kill you. Behind door number two is a hungry lion that hasn't eaten for three months. And behind door number three is a raging fire. You have to choose a door. Which door do you choose? And, and assuming you want the best chance of survival, which, which would you choose? The ninjas, the lion, or the raging fire? Huh? 
And there you go. I see some hands. Yeah, there's some brighter ones than me in that room. I was like, I don't know. Maybe the ninjas. I can probably take them. But the answer to the question was, of course, door number two, because a lion who hadn't eaten in three months is a dead lion. And we all know that we have to have food, right? We have to have food to live. And, of course, Jesus knows that too. Like, these people are more than a little hangry. Like, they're looking for Jesus to do another sign, wanting him to be the political ruler of Israel. And so Jesus comes to this gorilla forest and feeds them. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 speaks about the sustenance that God provides. And if you've ever taken the Lord's Supper from me and up here, then you've heard me often quote that verse. Come to me, everyone who thirsts, come to me. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Don't spend your labor on that which is not food and your effort on that which does not satisfy. But listen to me and delight yourself in the richest affair, Isaiah says. It's a picture of Jesus. Just living that out here in John chapter 6. Most miracles in the Bible are restorative miracles. Like sight is giving back to the blind. Hearing is giving back to those who can't hear. The lame walks again. But this miracle, which is the only miracle aside from the resurrection, that all four gospel writers talk about. Interesting, isn't it? Is a sustaining miracle. These, for these people in the ancient Near East, bread and water were the basics of life. Kind of like Chick-fil-A waffle fries. And bread and water was the motivation for so many of their meals. How do we, you know, when people, when a father would go on a journey, he would ask two questions. Where is a good well where I can draw water and where can we start a fire to then bake bread? The entire civilization revolved around bread and water. Which leads us to the second thing that it shows us about how Jesus is our sufficiency. Not only is he our source of life, but Jesus came primarily not to give us bread, but to be bread. In the Old Testament, people cried and grumbled because they couldn't find bread and water. And so God provided for them in the Old Testament wilderness, didn't they? He provided manna. It was, coriander, it was like the size of coriander seed, but it was white. That You could grind it down. You could bake it. And it tasted like, um, kind of like crackers, like wafers with honey, it says in the Old Testament. And Jesus provided it. And they didn't really know what it was. And so they called it manna, which in Hebrew means what? Like, what is it? That's what it means. What is it? What is manna? And Jesus provided bread and water for them. And Jesus today says, listen, I did not come merely to give you a good meal for another day, but I, but I want to give you what you need for eternal life. He said to the woman at the well in chapter 4, I am the wellspring of life. I am the living water. And in chapter 6, he says, I'm all, I am the bread of life. I am what you need for the sustenance of your life. And some of us, you know, some of us can relate to the disciples. And when I read just the first half of this story, it makes me think so much of Peter's and Andrew's situation. Like it, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes in verse 5. Do you see it? 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Jesus lifted up his eyes, which is something he told the disciples to do in John 4.35. Lift up your eyes, the field is white for harvest. And Jesus is in this still consistent as he is, always and forever. He lifts up his eyes and he sees you. And he knows your situation. And he wants you to know today that his sufficiency is revealed in your helplessness. And not only that, but Jesus may ask you some very unfair questions you may think in your life. Jesus asked Peter, where are we to buy bread for all these people? And some of you feel like Jesus is asking you some really unfair questions. How you are to live with this family. Doesn't seem fair. You are to endure through this suffering. And to us, the questions that the Holy Spirit asks of us often don't seem fair, do they? But I want you to hear Peter, and I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes, because many of you are right there. And John wants his audience to be able to relate to Peter, because Jesus has asked Peter what looks at face value to be a very unfair question. What's he asking you that seems unfair? Some of you have children who are running from the gospel, and it doesn't seem fair. Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in your helplessness. For some of you, Jesus is taking away financial resources that you once had and enjoyed. Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in your helplessness. For some of you, it's relationships that you once enjoyed in your extended family. Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in your helplessness. For some of you, it's that you're getting older. And as somebody said today, well, the alternative to getting older is worse. As Christians, we know that we have a great hope, right? But as we get older, our bodies change. And Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in our helplessness. What question is Jesus asking of you like he did Peter or Philip that may not seem fair? And could it be that Jesus actually wants you to recognize your helplessness and your dependence upon the gospel in that very context? Don't you know that Jesus is a good physician? He uses his scalpel on us in ways that demonstrate how well trained he is because he knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He doesn't just know you physically. He knows you completely. And he is asking things that may seem unfair so that you recognize that you are helpless to save yourself. But that Jesus' sufficiency is what you need. This is where the gospel goes to work on Philip. Jesus worked in a way that defied reason. And for many of you, Jesus is working in your life in a way that defines what you think is reasonable. And it's in that moment that he's showing himself to be sufficient for you. Do you believe that? John is trying to drive home the point of who Jesus is because the first century church stood in the midst of a culture and a context that had incredible rising opposition to the gospel. And it is not unlike the same context we live in today. Oh, there's a thin veneer of Christianity in our context. But we must be people who are able to stand with our back straight, head up, shoulders back, because we must be able to stand on the truth of God's word. 
And even in that opportunity, Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in our helplessness. And by his decree, Jesus will put us in situations where there are no feasible or natural solutions. Because Jesus did not come to give us bread, but he came to be bread. Jesus isn't just the one who gives us life. He is the source of life for us. Benjamin Franklin once famously said, God helps those who help themselves. That is great advice. But it is not biblical. God helps those who are helpless before him. That's what grace does. Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. And as a loving father, he knows what you need. When a physician wants to heal you of a broken bone, he gives you crutches to walk on. When Jesus wants you to heal you of a broken soul, he pulls your crutches away. And we have to learn how to limp and feel the weight on the pain of our situation. He takes from you, but his yoke, it says in Matthew 11, is not burdensome. It is easy and it is light when you see that Jesus' sufficiency is revealed in our helplessness. Jesus is the source of life. Are you exhausted trying to find contentment? Or would you hear your Savior say to you, I know what you need. And yes, we're doing this. I'm the source of life. I came not to give you bread, but I came to be bread. I want to show you the extent of my love for you, which he ultimately did. For those of us who stand on this side of history, we can see that he did that at the cross. And his blood flowed from wounded side with hands and feet stretched out wide to answer what was unfair, save those who don't seem to care. Yet in his love, he complied to be the bread God supplied to feed the world by the cross and let none escape by loss. No, he will not let you go. He wants you to overflow, to join his purpose and plan. The question is, will you take his hand? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you... are all we need for eternal life. And Lord, I confess that I run to a thousand other ways to save myself. But yet your sufficiency reveals itself in my helplessness. Lord, I pray you'd be with those who feel like they are being asked unfair questions right now, that you would draw near to them and you'd minister them into their time of need and context. And that you would remind them that they don't bear those burdens alone but they bear them as members of a church together, shepherding burdens, encouraging, rebuking, loving, supporting, providing for each other as your hands and feet. And as we look at your cross and we see the great Passover supper demonstrated for us again in the Lord's table today, Father, help us to know that you are revealing to us yet again your sufficiency. And bless us now as we give of our tithes and offerings in ways that honor you you are the bread of life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.